0: We'll come to the time in our service now where we'll look at a passage from the Bible, talk about what it means, <clears throat> why it matters, and what we should do about it, and we got a, a doozy today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 34, if you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 773, and when you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read this passage together. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 34. We'll read together. Luke writes this. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, Who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So far, so good. Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest... And put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. You can tell this is pre social media. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Yeah, this is God's Word. <laughs> you may be seated. This is how you can tell we don't pick the passages. We go into a book, we come to what is, what's there. Let's pray together, ask God to, to lead us as we work through this troubling passage. Spirit of God, we ask you to come now and open our hearts and our minds as we... Come to a really difficult section of your word. We're asking you to just reveal to us what it is that you want us to see here. We believe that every part of your word is inspired by your spirits. And it has a purpose that you want to accomplish. That you're sending out your word as you say to accomplish the purpose that you send it out. And you say "It, it always happens. It doesn't return void to you. So we ask, oh God, would you accomplish the purpose that you have for this in each one of our hearts and lives today. And as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. The great 19th century preacher and author Charles Spurgeon once told this story about a king, a gardener, and a nobleman that went something like this. There was this gardener who grew this massive carrot in his garden one day and he brought it to the king and gave it to him as a gift. He said, "Uh, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow and I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. And the king was deeply touched by this offering. He discerned the man's heart and as the gardener went to leave, he said, wait, I I can see that you are an excellent steward of the earth. And because of this, I want to give you freely a plot of land now to garden for yourself. I want you to garden all of it. Well, the gardener was grateful, and he left uh, the king's presence there rejoicing. There was a nobleman uh, in the court that day who overheard all this, and he thought, wow, the king will give someone a whole plot of land for a carrot. What might he give for something even greater? So the next day, he brought in a beautiful stallion, Presented it to the king as a gift. He said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I ever have bred or will breed. And I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned this man's heart, and he said simply, Thanks very much. Took the horse and dismissed the man. While seeing his obvious confusion, the king said, Let me explain. That gardener who you obviously saw the other day, he was giving me the carrot, but you were just giving yourself a horse. So, what was going on there? What was, what was happening? I mean, from an outside perspective, uh, the acts were basically identical, weren't they? They were both giving the best of what they had to the king. And yet their motivation for giving, why they were giving, was the, the sole difference between why one act was an act of devotion to the king and the other was simply an devo- act of devotion to self. And the king, who was obviously rightly discerning between those two acts, called out that nobleman's uh, testing of his benevolence and also of uh, his pretense in his offering. He saw it for what it was and called it out. Well, as we... Continuing this morning in our series for the book of Acts, Pioneer Church, what we see in our passage today is a story almost identical to that story of the the nobleman and the gardener, of course with much more severe consequences at the end, but very similar story. It's a story that for many of us, to to our modern ears, is actually quite offensive to read, because when we pull it out of its uh, biblical and historical context, first of all, we, we feel like the punishment doesn't fit the crime, don't we? And then, secondly, uh, it, it seems to be showing the church at this time, which a lot of people from an outside perspective looking in already think it makes the church look like it only cares about money, just want to get people's money from them. But I hope you'll see by the end of our time together going through this that, A, the punishment of Ananias and Sapphira was absolutely fitting, and B, their punishment had nothing to do with how much money they put in the offering plate. Nothing to do with that. No, just, just like in Spurgeon's tale there about the gardener and the nobleman, it's why they were giving. Their, their motivation for giving that had everything to do with why Barnabas's act of offering was a, seen as a true act of worship to God, and Ananias and Sapphira, their giving, their offering was seen as an act of worship, really just to themselves. And I think this is incredibly important for us to look at this morning, in this cautionary tale of the early church, because although we may want to look with folded arms and shaking our head at Ananias and Sapphira, why, why would you... Why would you test the Spirit of God like that? I think the sad reality is that we are in danger of doing this exact same thing in our own lives. In fact, we do it all the time. And if you forget everything else that I say to you this morning, if you just remember one thing, and it's this. Pretense in worship is deadly in the church. Pretense in worship is deadly deadly in the church, both to the individual as well as to the church as a whole. And the reason is because every time you pretend to be something that you're not, every time you present false worship to God, first of all, you deny the transforming power of the gospel to others who see your hypocrisy. And on the other hand, you also deny yourself the spirit's ability to transform you where you need to be transformed. Because you're acting like you're totally killing it when when you're not. Whenever we do that, whenever we have this pretense in our worship, we're literally like that child who's been told to do something for our good, but we still continually test the boundaries of it, try to get around it, try to test to see if it's really true by, by not being obedient to it and seeing if we can still avoid punishment. Only in this case, we're not testing a mom or a dad or a teacher. We're testing the spirit of God when we do that, which as we've just read, he he doesn't play around. He does not play around when it comes to his people. So in order to protect us from this dangerous testing as well as to protect the witness of our church family as well as our witness to a watching world, I want to look at our passage just one here, just three ways. We're going to look at identifying a counterfeit, filling with the wrong Spirit, and then finally, testing God correctly. Okay, Identifying a counterfeit, filling with the wrong spirit, and testing God correctly. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to Acts 4, starting at verse 34. Follow along with me as we dig into this very troubling event in the life of this pioneer church. Let's start out by looking at identifying a counterfeit. Identifying a counterfeit. Now, it's probably a... A well known fact to all of us by now, maybe you didn't know banks, uh, federal agents, when they're training their staff to, to learn how to identify counterfeit currency, counterfeit bills, they don't have them study hundreds of different counterfeits. They have them study the genuine currency, the original bills, so thoroughly and extensively, well, that then a counterfeit, when they see it, it becomes obvious. They can see it clearly. I think if you think about that story we just heard from Spurgeon about the gardener and the nobleman, doesn't the gardener's genuine act of devotion give us an example by which we can now see the nobleman's act of offering, it's now a counterfeit. It shows us because we see what the original is. Well, in verse 36 and 37 here, Luke, I think, is doing the same thing. He's giving us just such an example of what genuine worship looks like, telling us about this man Barnabas, this son of encouragement. He sells a field, he lays the money at the apostles' feet. It's an offering, we're told, to help care for the needy, so there's no needy people among this early church. Now, we know this is not an everyday occurrence. Uh, uh, Through the passage, we see that he says this happens from time to time. So it's not happening every day. And we also see from Peter's rebuke of Ananias in chapter 5 and verse 4 there... When these incredible acts of generosity did happen, they, they weren't compulsory. These were voluntary things. They, 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 they did this of their own volition, which shows you right away, first of all, hey, the, the church wasn't here just about grabbing people's money. It wasn't at all about that. These were voluntary acts from people, nor is this passage uh, teaching, as some people have uh, said, teaching an early form of communism. Uh, also, chapter 2, verse 44 and 45 there, some people say, well, this is teaching kind of early forms of communism. No, we see the people who had these lands and houses, they they were theirs. They owned them. There wasn't a communal pool that they just kind of dumped everything into. They belonged to them. Now, there's no indication that Luke is telling this story about Barnabas in order to set up what he wants to tell about Ananias and Sapphira, but doesn't Barnabas' act of uh, genuine worship give us just a a, a real uh, original... Bill, the, the original, if you want to call it, the original currency by which to judge a counterfeit. It shows us what genuine worship looks like. And what stands out, at least to me, when I read this account of Barnabas's offering, of this money, he sells the land, he, he gives it to the church, what stands out to me is just the simplicity of it. It's so... Just clear and to the point. There's no fanfare. He just states it factually. Like, hey, uh, uh, the needs of the early church, uh, they were met this way. Barnabas, he happened to have a field. He sold it. He brought the money. Just That's it. He just states it factually. Which tells me, at least, that the focus of this act of what Barnabas did, it wasn't on Barnabas at all. The focus was still on Jesus and this act of worship to him done through Barnabas, in order to meet the needs of the early church. Focus wasn't on Barnabas. It was still on Jesus. When it comes to our own lives and we're trying to understand, well, how do I know? How how can I tell if my worship to God is genuine or counterfeit? An easy way that I think we can discern that for ourselves, whether that's an offering of our time, our talent, or our treasure, is to ask ourselves a very simple question. Whatever it is that you are offering to God in worship... Who is it that you intend the focus to be on after you've given it? When you've given a, an offering to God in worship, who do you want the focus to be on after you've given it? If you can say in your heart, understanding that none of us have 100% pure motives, we don't, but if you can say in your heart, hey, I, I just want to honor God with this offering. I just want to honor Him. I don't, I don't care if people see me, applaud me, honor me. That, I, I just want to honor God with this. There's a good chance This is an offering to God that is genuine worship. It's great. And yet, man, just to give you an example of my own life, when when I look back at my own life, particularly through some of my earlier years, especially in my 20s, when I'm not sure where I was in my own faith at that time, although it looked many times like uh, uh, from the outside I was honoring God with my, my singing, my music leading, singing in choirs and all this stuff, when I look back now, I cringe at the thought of how often the one who I really wanted people to see, I really wanted people to honor and applaud, was me. It was not. It was not genuine worship at all. It was a counterfeit. And by God's grace, I, I didn't get knocked down like this. It was His grace alone. So. If we want to worship God in a way that truly honors Him, that truly builds His church, we will always seek to do it in a way that takes the focus off of us and points it back to Him. If you can say, if you know you're doing that in your own heart, it's a great way to test the genuineness of your worship or whether or not it's a counterfeit. Who's the focus on at the end? Okay, so that's identifying a counterfeit. I hope that gives you at least some kind of a gauge to use in discerning your own genuineness in your worship. With that example now of Barnabas's genuine worship in front of us, I want to move now to compare with this counterfeit offering from Ananias and Sapphira. From the very first Sunday when we began this series in Acts, we were talking about being witnesses for Jesus and how that comes as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we saw particularly in Acts 1.8. But for all that talk of being Spirit-filled and His empowering of our witness. I think what we see now as we move into chapter 5 is how bearing false witness to Jesus, pretense in our worship, it also is the result of being spirit-filled. It's just being filled with the wrong spirit. So let's look now at filling with the wrong spirit. Filling with the wrong spirit. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Look there. Luke gives us this description of... Of this counterfeit worship of Ananias and Sapphira. He says, Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, if we just had verse 1, we're doing good, right? I mean, that's basically the same, just factual. They sold the field, they brought the money. It's the same thing. It's only verse 2 that now reveals its counterfeit nature, but notice how quickly Luke is to want to just silence all of our inner defense attorneys, all of our, oh, that's not fair, kind of reactions, by showing us Ananias and his wife absolutely planned, intentionally, to be deceptive in this offering. They, they knew what they were doing. So it wasn't a mistake or a misunderstanding. This was deception in the first degree. But even in knowing that, if you're like me at all, isn't there still kind of a reaction in you that's like, okay, sure, they, they shouldn't have lied about the amount, but look, they're giving a huge sum of money to the church to help poor people. Why, why is that wrong again? What's wrong with that? I mean, why is Peter being so greedy? He's telling them, oh, you've got to bring me all the money from that sale of the house. Why, why, why would he, I mean, this, that's just what the church is about, man. It's just about getting people's money. Well, keep reading, because what you see is that it actually wasn't at all about that. The problem and the issue was not that they haven't given the whole amount of the sale to the church, it's that they told everyone they did. Or at least they just kept quiet and allowed everyone to believe that that's what happened. Yeah, Barnabas, he brought the whole, sum. yeah, us too, when they hadn't. Now, now, we're not told initially how Peter knew that they hadn't brought the whole amount in, whether this was an act of where the Spirit had, had revealed that to Peter, or someone had just... Told him, but the primary issue that Peter wants to address with both Ananias and Sapphira is pretense in their worship. Pretending to be someone or something that they're not, in this case, like Barnabas. And the charge Peter lays on both of them, there in verse 3 and 4, is that they have lied to the Holy Spirit. They've lied to God in doing this. And we've talked about this before, and we're absolutely going to see it again as we go through Acts. But what Peter is not doing here is he's not somehow saying that he sees himself as God. No, what we're seeing incredibly is that Jesus so intimately identifies himself with the church, that to lie to the church, to to persecute the church, to do anything against the church is the same as doing it to him. Isn't that what Jesus says to Paul a couple of chapters from now when he knocks him down on the road to Damascus? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Same thing here. You haven't lied to, to many, he says. You've lied to God. And very terrifyingly in verse 3, there, what we also see is that the empowering force that Peter identifies behind their false witnesses, being filled not with the Holy Spirit, but with the demonic spirit. So they are being spirit-filled. It's just being filled with the wrong spirit. And as a result, they're no longer being witnesses for Jesus. And we're going to get to their devastating discipline that God lays down on Ananias and his wife in a minute. But I just want to highlight two things quickly as we look at this section. First of all, when Peter tells Ananias ananias that satan has filled his heart to inspire him to do this thing he's not speaking from some kind of a high horse of moral superiority he's speaking from experience He's speaking from experience. If you've read that story back in Matthew 16, where Peter very helpfully pulls Jesus aside and, and rebukes him for uh, telling everyone that he's going to be uh, crucified and handed over to the religious leaders. And Peter says, you need to stop saying that stuff. That's not going to happen to you, Jesus. Remember what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan. Which I'm sure all the other <laughs> apostles are like, whoa, what did, he, what did he just... Get behind me, Satan. Now Jesus goes on to explain what he means by that. He so says, I'm not saying that Peter is Satan. I'm not saying that he's been uh, possessed by Satan in order to say those things. He says, what that means is that, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's what that means. And I think it's the exact same thing here. I don't think Peter is saying, Ananias, you've been possessed by Satan, and that's why you came up with this scheme I think he's saying, no, no, your pretense in worship is, doesn't have the things of God in mind. It has the things of men in mind. It's all about you. And so it's pretense in your worship. I think that's what he's saying there. Secondly, here's what I don't think happened. That Sunday after Barnabas had given that great offering, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira, they went out to lunch at White Spot and sat there and said to each other, you know what would be awesome? If we could find a way to simultaneously endanger the witness of the whole church and block our spiritual growth at the same time, I wonder how we could do that. What is the way that we could do both of those things at the same time? I don't think that's what they were doing. I think simply what happened was they saw the the unsought praise and, and rejoicing that came about when Barnabas sold that field and brought the money in to the church. And rather than just being honest... Just being honest and saying, wow, that is incredible. And you know what? My heart is not there. I, I, could, I, I could not be that free right now. I, I could not be that uh, generous with my wealth right now. That's not where my heart's at. Instead of just being honest with God and with their church community like that, they sought instead to pretend like that's where they were at. They pretended like that's where they were at. They, they they were content to fake Christian maturity rather than taking the time and effort that's required to actually attain it. And don't we do this exact same thing all the time? Don't we try to wash our ambition with spiritual talk? To to dress up our self-focused actions with church clothes to make it look nicer? I know I have I know I have I mean I've told this story to you before but man, I know when I came here to Vancouver first pursue a career in film and television I would have told any of you hey do you know what film and television community is such a dark uh, community it's so in need of Jesus and I want to I want to seek to be a light for him in that community to be a witness for him that's awesome that's a great thing. And if that's what God's called you to, awesome, run after that. Do you know what the problem was? What I really wanted was to be a big star and make a lot of money. That, that's really what I wanted. But man, doesn't that first version sound way better? <laughs> way more spiritual, way less, uh, uh, I don't know, less uh, egotistical and self-focused. <laughs> sounds so much better, but we do that because... In our community, it just sounds better, it's more acceptable, so we dress it up to make it sound right. Or to that other point, think about this, don't we also, when we come into church, come into church on a Sunday, come into our small group, out with our Christian friends, don't we look around, assess the spiritual level of maturity that we see around us, and then immediately say to ourselves, okay, well, I can't show this about myself. I can't let people see that I don't know that, or I can't do that. So I'm just going to fake that level of spiritual maturity that they're doing, so I can be just. We can all just get along together. We think that that's going to bring about unity and, and spiritual growth and we can just fake it together. No, right? I mean, the the very first problem with that is that faking spiritual maturity, like, like anything, it's possible. Yeah, you can do it. But man, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. You can't keep it up. I promise you, you go out after church, you just head out with Johan, who happens to train with the Whitecaps, a strength and conditioning coach at UBC. You, you try to fake his level of fitness. Say, oh yeah, I, I work out too. Let's, let's go, let's go work out. You try to fake that, you're going to get outed super quick. Because you can't keep it up. Maybe for the first 10 steps you would, but no, you can't keep it up. It's exhausting, and we can't keep it up. Second problem with faking spiritual maturity like anything, while it's possible, is, is, again, when you're faking it, nobody around you knows you. You're not truly known, so nobody knows how they can support you, how they can pray for you, how they can encourage you. And again, like we said at the beginning, you you actually deny yourself the, the opportunity of the Spirit who wants to actually work in those areas where you're not... You don't have faith where you're not strong enough. He wants to grow that stuff in you, but you're acting like I've got it together so you don't seek to grow in those ways. And you've lost the ability of the community to come around you and help you grow too. Finally, when we fake maturity like this and sanctify our self-focus with spiritual clothes and language, we damage the health, the, the unity, as well as the witness of our church as a whole because when... You get outed when you you can't keep it up anymore and your hypocrisy is seen. You know what happens? The transforming power of the gospel, which really is transforming, all of a sudden looks to people now like a joke. It looks like a lie. Uh, People who, who are just looking for any opportunity to not believe in Jesus see those things and they think, oh, I knew it. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought it was a joke. Good, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that Christianity stuff. Now listen, I'm not talking about discipleship. I'm not talking about looking at more mature Christians and trying to grow in those ways. I'm talking here about just parroting actions and words you don't even believe. Just photocopying them and handing it in. Yeah, me too. I, I, that's what I think too. It doesn't bring about the change in you at all. This is one of the chief reasons why Also, humility in our witness is so key because we are going to fail. We are going to that we our hearts aren't pure and 100% motivations aren't 100% right. So, when we're humble about our witness and we say, "You know what? I'm still working this out," we show where we fail. It helps take the focus off of us and point back to Jesus again. You see, and listen more than any church or church member, the spirit of God is passionately committed to stopping you from doing that, <laughs> to, st- to stopping you from doing any of those things, which is what we're going to see now in our last point, testing God correctly. Testing God correctly. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably hear me say those words, testing God correctly, and you're going think, well, correctly? S- testing God correctly? I mean, not, I'm not a biblical scholar or anything, but isn't... Isn't testing God supposed to be a bad thing in the Bible? And I would say, yes, you're absolutely right. It is, which is why I want to show you how to do it correctly. I want to show you how to do it correctly. I mean, Ananias and his wife, like so many of us, yeah, they they do it wrong. And in this instant, God takes their lives for it. But I think the Bible shows us a way to actually do this correctly, which both preserves the health and the witness of the church and actually fosters true spiritual maturity, So let's look at this. Look at verse 9 with me of our passage. Now, right before, uh, uh, Peter calls in Sapphira now, and he gives her, it seems like he gives her an opportunity to repent. He's almost like testing it out, like, are you in on this too? And so he says, hey, is that the price you got? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's right. And he just, of course, shakes his head, like, why would you agree to do this? Look what he says in verse 9. How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Okay, so firstly, this is the wrong way to test God. That's what we're seeing demonstrated here. This is how you test God wrongly. So do you know what wrongly testing God is? It's what we've already said. You take a clear command of God. This is what I've called you to do. And then we disobey it. We disobey it in all kinds of different ways just to see if God really means what He says. It's like a, a, a parent... Uh, lovingly telling their kids, hey, don't go out on that frozen pond because I don't want you to fall through and drown. And then you go out with your friends, and what do you do? You keep testing it out, going a little bit further just to see if they were right. It really is dangerous. That's how we wrongly test God. A clear command, I'm just going to poke at it and see if if it explodes. Now, there's a lot of cues that we could look at from the Old Testament that show us what Peter means here when he's talking about testing God, testing the Spirit of the Lord, why is such a big deal. One of them is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to what Moses says to the people as they're about to head into the promised land. He says this, Do not test the Lord as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his stipulations and the decrees He has given you Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised you on oath to your forefathers. Now that testing that he's saying, don't don't do that again, is referring back to when the people of Israel, they just come out of slavery in Egypt. God has delivered them. He's taken them through the Red Sea. He's given them quail and manna. He's providing for all their needs. And yet still... In spite of all that, they still are complaining against God and Moses because now they don't have enough to drink. And rather than just say, man, look at how God's provided for us. Of course he'll be able to provide water. They start complaining and say, well, is God with us or what? sure doesn't look like it because I'm parched. And God is not having it. In that moment, as well as in countless other times, when they test God like this, When they continue to press and test what he's clearly commanded them to do, God sends all kinds of severe disciplines, plagues, attacking armies, and and, and they're destroyed. We know historically that when God's people enter into the promised land, from that first generation that left Egypt, only two people actually go in. Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else dies in the wilderness. Testing God. Bad idea. He does not take it lightly. Another cue comes from the book of Joshua. Now this is the next generation. They're about to head into uh, the land, and as they're crossing over, and they're claiming these cities and nations as they go, one of the very first battles they have is against this city of Jericho. Remember, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And as they're about to attack this city, God says, When I give this city and these people into your hands, you are to destroy everything. Everything is to be destroyed as an offering to me. It's your act of worship to me. It's your offering to me. Destroy everything. But in Joshua 7, we learn about a man named Achan who uh, takes some of the things that he's supposed to destroy as an offering to God and he keeps them back for himself. I don't know what it was. Maybe he saw like there was an Apple Watch still in the box and said, I can't destroy that. We'll We'll just put that away. God wouldn't want me to destroy that. Whatever it is, he finds some stuff, keeps it back for himself. And because of his testing of God's command, all of a sudden, the whole community of Israel is affected. They start losing battles that they should be winning. People are dying, and they're like, oh, what's happening. God, why aren't you with us? And God tells them, listen, someone among you has disobeyed my command. You need to find out who it is. So they check it out. They find out that it's Achan. He finally confesses what's happened, and because of this, because he has lied and endangered the whole community of Israel, Achan and his whole family are stoned to death. This is a, another awful story in the Bible, and yet very interestingly, most commentators say that what Luke is pointing to in Acts 5, he's actually pointing back to that story in Joshua 7. Both because of the, the deaths of the offending uh, individuals for putting God to the test, we see a protective community elements going on, these acts of judgment to protect the health and the unity of God's people, but also... Verse 3 of chapter 5, that word keeping back, the Greek word for keeping back that it talks about Ananias kept back some of the money, is the exact same word used in Joshua 7 to describe Achan keeping back some of the stuff that he was supposed to destroy. It's the exact same word used. Apparently this word is only used three times in the whole Bible. The other time is there, Joshua 7. Same word, and we're meant to draw these parallels together between the two stories. Now, there's a great deal we could say here already, but I think the point, at this point in time, it's important just to stop and recognize what we're seeing here, In what looks like drastic discipline from God it looks so unfair, it looks unjust, what we're seeing in both of those cases, Joshua 7 and Acts 5 is a God who is so passionately committed to protecting the health and the unity and integrity of his redeemed people that he will, at times, hand out incredibly severe discipline in order to demonstrate just how important it is that his church and his bride maintains their purity. He's that committed to it. And and lest we want to charge God with being unjust and unfair and say, that's too much! Why would you discipline in such a, a heavy manner? First, this sin, we've got to remember, listen, what happened 2,000 years ago? God wasn't just handing out this discipline from afar, chucking grenades over the wall. He came himself and endured the full weight of God's wrath poured out on Jesus on the cross for sin and disobedience. He poured it out on his son to cover over the mountain of ways that we have tested him and continue to test him to this day. This discipline, it's meant to serve as an example of just how seriously God takes this kind of testing him wrongly. Okay, so if that's wrongly testing God, how how do we do it right? How do we do it correctly? Well, very quickly, I think we see one of the most clearly stated examples of how we do this in the book of Malachi, which we uh, just worked through a few months ago. Listen to what God says to his people as it relates to, in this case, worshiping him in their offerings. Listen to what he says. Malachi 3, starting at uh, 8 here. I think it's on the screen. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Wow. Wow. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Do you see what that means? To test God correctly, then, is this, to take a clear command from God and obey it. Obey it and see if he means what he says. You see the difference? Ananias and Sapphira, they show us the consequences of wrongly testing God. How incredibly different, blessed would our lives be, would our church be, would the church in the world be today if we tested God like this instead? What if instead of taking the commands of God and seeing how much we could get away with without Him coming down on us, we decided to test God by obeying Him and seeing if He means what He says? Seeing if his plans for us really are better than what we could plan for ourselves. Trusting him that if we came to him and to one another and we're just open and honest about the ways that we are struggling, that we're doubting, that we're failing, and just we're open and honest about that and trusting that instead of condemnation and rejection, we'd find welcome and help, like he said, to trust him in that to test him and see if he means I really will accept you when you just come to me openly. Bring your junk to me. I can handle it. What if, like Peter, we trusted God to step out of the boat onto waves, trusting that he means what he says. You, You obey me. Step out, and you really will. Your feet will be sustained on the water. You won't drown. What if we tested God like that? There's a great, uh, there's a great danger in, in a message like this. So often I know myself, when we hear messages like this, we think in our hearts like, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. They really need to hear this message. Or somebody beside you like, I hope they're listening right now. Can I ask you just at this moment, don't do that. I want you to just take a moment right now in the quietness of your heart, think about you. Think about your own life and where you're at right now with God, truly. And ask yourself this First of all, where are you hiding? Where are you hiding still? Where are you faking a a put togetherness that you don't actually have? Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of pretending? I know enough people in this church, I know that if you openly and honestly would just share, hey, you know what, things are not going well in my marriage right now, would you pray for me? Somebody flirting with me at work, and actually I kind of like it, uh, 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 and I don't want to like it, Would would you pray for me? I know these things you're saying are true about God, and I see everyone doing this, and so I do this, but I don't really believe that's true right now. I can tell you that there's a number of people in this church, a lot of us, who you're not going to be rejected. You're not going to go to the second-class Christian list. You'll be accepted. And we can grow together that way. We can actually deal with those places, if we can be honest. Secondly, ask yourself, where are you wrongly testing God? Where do you know what He's called you to be obedient to, and you're just waiting, you're holding out to see how long you can continue to test Him before He actually calls you about it? Where are you serving God in ways that's actually about you serving you and not him? I believe Jesus' word to each and every one of us in here this morning is this. Test me. Test me. Listen to what I've called you to do and just be obedient to it. No matter how scary or, or incomprehensible or uncomfortable it seems, just be obedient to it and test me. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Let's pray together right now. I'd ask those of you that are helping me serve communion if you would come forward at this time. Living God, we come before you this morning with thanksgiving as well as I pray with exposed hearts. I pray that your spirit has revealed some things to us this morning that are going to help us to grow, that are going to help us to see the the life change that you truly want to bring in us. God, we want to be your witnesses. We want that boldness and our witness free us from these things that we do right now that are hindering that free us from uh, bringing uh, disrepute on your church because we've faked a level of maturity that we don't actually have and God reveal to us the, the welcome and the embrace that comes when we come honestly to you because you already know anyway Show us the the life that you truly want us to have and you truly will work in us when we open ourselves to you and to this family of faith together so that we can grow and be grown. Do this for your glory and your great name. Amen.